want to be in a situation in a relationship where your spouse is jacked for you when things are going great for you. And then you need to be the same way. Welcome back to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. My name is Mike Flynn, and I am honored to be your host. Our mission here on the Impact Entrepreneur Show is not just to inspire you, but also to help you tap into and begin to believe in your God-given potential and purpose. That's right, baby. We want you to not only be inspired, but experience breakthrough. And we do that on this podcast by interviewing incredible people who are using their experiences, their skill set, their platforms to have a game-changing impact in the lives of others. And here's the thing. None of these folks are simply sitting back, living a life of leisure. They have things to do, places to go, and lives to impact. Speaking of that, Ken Coleman is a career expert, the best-selling author of The Proximity Principle, and the host of The Ken Coleman Show. Pulling from his own personal struggles, missed opportunities, and career successes, Coleman helps people discover what they were born to do and provides practical steps to make their dream job a reality. Ken's parents were the first to breathe life into his dreams, but two of his teachers also made a big impact in his life early on. The first was the elementary school teacher who gave him an extra jolt of self-esteem by always calling him Doc, and a drama teacher who poured gasoline on his dream by telling him he could do great things. And Ken always had big dreams, big dreams of becoming a national broadcaster, but of course, Big dreams also come with big obstacles. Ken experienced a lot of rejection when he tried to break into radio and things just weren't working out the way he had hoped. Then one day, he was sitting on his patio having a one-man pity party when he realized that nobody was sitting around thinking about how they could help Ken Coleman out. Nobody was waking up and wondering, hey, this Ken Coleman guy, I think I could he could be a really good broadcaster. Why don't I give him a call today and open every door for him? That just wasn't reality. That realization hit Ken like a ton of bricks. He knew he had the talent to be a great broadcaster, but that day he realized that was not enough. If he really wanted to make an impact, he had to actually pave that road himself, and that process was going to be long and arduous. In Ken's book, The Proximity Principle, It's all about helping people pave that road for themselves by showing up and getting to know the right people who are going to help you fulfill your dreams so that the right opportunities find their way to you and you find them. Ken says that we human beings want progress, and that's a good thing. But if we obsess about the next step, we miss what we're doing right now and what we're supposed to be doing and learning in the moment. He offers three pieces of advice for people working toward their dream job. Number one, know your role. You have to have absolute clarity on what is expected and what the win looks like. Number two, accept your role. Be grateful for the job you have now because it's a step on the ladder to your dream job. Number three, maximize your role. 
Do things outside of your normal duties and demonstrate value. Those are just three tips that he offers in this incredibly powerful, motivational, impactful, and actionable conversation with the great Ken Coleman. So bust out your pens and paper, take some notes, and brace for impact. Ken Coleman, welcome to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. Super excited to have you. We're going to talk about your Wall Street Journal best-selling book, The Proximity Principle, and the, the important and powerful and actionable lessons and tips and tricks that you provide for people within that book, within the pages of that book. Before we do that, we, we're going to start where we start with every single guest, whether it's Lou Holtz or Jocko Willink or you know, uh, Carrie Lorenz or coming soon, the, uh, the actually somebody who just aired before you, actually, the former lead solo pilot for the Blue Angels, which was a really cool episode. Um, we, we always start with the origin story, kind of where people come from. One of my favorite questions to ask is, who was your childhood hero? Hmm. Uh, that's a good question. I, I think it would have to be Ronald Reagan. I, I, and I, I paused there for a minute because you get childhood, then you got adolescence. And I was about, well, in fact, I was 10 years old. The first time I saw him on TV it was in 1984, and he was running for re-election. And it was the Republican National Convention. And I'm sitting on the floor, probably playing with some toys, some G.I. Joe men, I guess. And he came on the screen because my dad was watching it. And, you know, you're 10 years old, you know, so you're kind of coming in and out. You got the attention span of, a, you know, a firefly. <laughs> and so uh, something happened. I'll never forget it. And I wrote about this in my first book. But it was an amazing moment for me to kind of pay attention to something that I had never paid attention to. And it wasn't that all of a sudden I was, a, you know, Republican savant. It was that I just was enthralled by his speaking style. And the you know, raucous crowd. It's kind of this magical moment on television. And uh, my dad was was a political junkie and he loved Reagan. So Reagan became this iconic figure to me. Uh, so he would be one. And I guess prior to that, and then kind of moving on, I, uh, I idolized uh, Walter Payton for some reason. I just I thought that sweetness was the greatest thing I'd ever seen in my life. I was and Walter Payton was cool with that headband, you know, and he was this fast but indestructible running back. So those would be two childhood kind of iconic figures for me. Interesting. So so you got those, they're two great juxtapositions there. You got one that's a polit- actor, political figure, and then another that's, uh, that's uh, performing on the, the, the stage of the football field. So did... Did those early moments kind of shape the way that you dreamed about what you wanted to be as a as an adult? Yeah, I would tell you that I got, you know, I also love Magic Johnson. There were a few sports characters that I thought were great, but the Reagan influence on me was profound. And because I began to pay attention to what he said and how he said it. And I remember he used that beautiful analogy of shining city on a hill, you know. Mm-hmm borrowed from William Bradford, I believe. You guys can fact check me on this, but I'm going deep into my history geek uh, psyche here. But this idea of a shining city on a hill, that America could once again be the shining city on a hill. And so he he created this positive narrative that really was, whether you liked his politics or not, this is certainly not a political statement, but he was uh, he, he, he thought the best of Americans. Um, mm-hmm. 
political opponents really, really liked him because he wasn't a nasty guy. He was very positive. He believed the best in people. He had some wonderful lines throughout his, his political career and his speeches that I really grabbed onto. And he influenced my decision uh, in a lot of ways to consider politics. And that's what I actually went into. He had mm-hmm. a profound impact on this idea of serving the, your fellow man, serving the greater good, um, and, and rising above to uh, be a patriot. And uh, so certainly, no question, I mean, those threads still run throughout what I do. I love mm-hmm. people, helping people on the radio every day, helping them discover who they are. And once they discover that, how do you make that dream a reality? Mm-hmm. That's not an American idea. That's a human idea. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But anyway, yeah, I would say that he had great influence on me. And then again, I was an athlete. I don't look like one now, so I guess I'd have to... You're a basketball player, right? Uh, yeah, basketball is my favorite sport uh, and probably my best sport. But Walter Payton, you know, uh, any athletes like he and Magic Johnson, to name a few that I really looked up to, um, they had an indomitable spirit in their own ways. Peyton was a quiet guy, magic, obviously, an ever-vestent personality, the biggest personality in the room. Um, but this idea of commitment, working hard, lifting a team, leading a team to something greater, those are things that I connected with. Mm-hmm. My, uh, my daughter, my 11-year-old daughter, Maeve, who I talk about a lot on this podcast, I have four kids. Uh, my oldest is 13, goes Christiana 13, Maeve 11, Mick and Charlie nine and eight. But um, Maeve is the world's number one Warriors fan. <laughs> and, and she, uh, so needless to say, she was a little bit heartbroken by how the uh, the season came to to a conclusion for the Warriors. But nevertheless, she was merciful because we were riddled with injuries and we still competed at a high level against the Raptors. But the uh, the reason I'm bringing this up is because one of the things that she talks about is how uh, hard work beats talent when talent fails to work hard. And she's got these messages written on the outside of her basketball shoes, all her basketball equipment, because she even admits she's like, I'm not, I was asking her, I was taking her to a basketball camp and I asked her, Maeve, why do you have those messages written on the outside of your shoes in Sharpie and stuff? She's like, well, dad, because, you know, when I first started playing basketball, I wasn't the best and I'm still not the best, but I'm willing to work hard. And I'm like, heck yeah. You know, that didn't come from me. That came from within her. You know, she has got this desire and I'm just going to breathe life into that. She's got this dream to be, she wrote a, she wrote a three page letter to DeMarcus Cousins. Uh, and uh, he, we sent it to the Warriors. He, he didn't. He never got a response back. But in that, she laid out her life plan. She said, my first goal is to be to play in the WNBA. But if that doesn't work, then my next goal is to be the chief financial officer for the Warriors. Because there's already, And I know I could do that because the current one is already a woman. And then if that doesn't work out, then I want to be a doctor of physical therapy. You know? So I'm like, yes, you know, we need more of that. So... I'm just going to breathe life into that. Who was the first person to breathe life into some of your dreams? Well, it certainly be my mom and dad were the first people to do that. And, you know, they, they, you know, preached the value of hard work, you know, that if you're going to dream like that, then you're going to have to, you're going to have to work hard. You're going to have to get after it. And mm-hmm. 
into it. They inspired that. They inspired this idea of a calling that there was, in fact, a dream that is attached to the creator and that I was created to do something that was going to matter. And that was that was communicated to us very clearly. Mm-hmm. They weren't the rah-rah type, you know, uh, but very supportive and always there for my brother and I and everything that we did. Uh, but that would be those would be the first people to to actually do that. But I'll tell you, uh, outside of my parents, because I think that's an easy answer. And so I want to I want to honor some people that, quite frankly, I don't know that I've ever honored on a podcast before. There was a guy by the name of I don't think his first name because he was my teacher, you know, so it was Mister Everything. So his name was Mr. Jarvis. And I want to say his first name was Mark. But Mr. Jarvis was, uh, I think, my first or second grade teacher. And uh, one of those grades. And, and he was a guy that locked on to me pretty early on. And there's something that he liked about me. To this day, I'd love to ask him what it was. But my mom and dad would talk about it years later. Um, but he called me Doc. And I mean, I'm a first or second grader, and he's calling me Doc. You know, he said, hey, Doc, and always called me Doc and, and never explained it to me. I never asked him, why do you call me Doc? But it meant a lot to me. And it, it was a way of, uh, he gave me an extra jolt of self-esteem. Not that I needed it. I was always a confident little guy. But uh, that was, he was a guy that believed in me and would say things like, you're going to do great things, things like that. And, and, uh, so I think of, think of him. I think of my sophomore, junior, and senior years, a lady by the name of Joy Bryant was my drama teacher and speech teacher who literally said some of the most uplifting, amazing things anybody's ever said to me about what she thought I could do and the kind of talent that I had. And so those were in those later years. She certainly poured gasoline on my dreams. What's one thing that she said to you that stands out? Uh, I don't know that it was word for word here, but I remember her telling me one time we were uh, in rehearsal for a school play and I had uh, not gotten the part that I wanted. And she had cast me for this comic relief guy. And uh, I wanted to be the lead. And she it was the mousetrap. I write about this in my book, One Question. And she had cast me for this comic relief guy, this zany character named Christopher Wren. And I wanted to be the lead. And when she had revealed the roles, I had went to her classroom and expressed my dismay and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And she said, trust me, uh, no one else can do this the way you can do it. And if you do it well, you'll steal the show. Well, that was nice. But at the time, it didn't mean anything to me. And I write about that, you know, like the lesson I learned that night going home from the first performance when I did steal the show. She taught me something valuable. And that is that you got to play the role that you were meant to play. And when you do that, the audience will respond. Now, that was this life lesson. But so now going forward, you know, probably a week or two into rehearsals, she, uh, I was just kind of half butt, you know, I wouldn't give it my all. I still had a bad attitude about it, you know, because I wanted to be the lead, the lead detective, not this crazy guy. And I remember she pulled me aside at the end of one of the practices practicing play and she said do you remember what i told you and she kind of reminded me of that lesson i just shared and she basically said you have wildly imaginative talent and you can take this thing and do whatever you want with this and i know you want the pressure i know you want the limelight but i'm telling you if you miss out on this opportunity to play this thing and to be you to be the best you 
um, you're going to regret it. And I'm telling you right now, you you can do great things, and I'm expecting you to do great things. Mm. It starts with being great in this role, something to that effect. And it was probably the first time anybody had ever said anything like, great, you can be great. And it wasn't a motivational thing. She was looking at me going, you you could be really great. You've got a gift of, t- of communicating and connecting with an audience, something like that. And again, I'm I'm 16. So yeah, right. I remember word for word, but that was a that was a big moment for me. And I think maybe the first time in my life where I felt like being great was was, was actually really attainable. Yeah, and and it was something that resonated with you because it was it's I. I also believe that we're created for a unique purpose and that oftentimes we end up taking detours and finding different ways that we end up expressing kind of some sort of a shimmer of that purpose, but not necessarily the the ideal, the the, the true core purpose. Um, so we feel frustrated. But in that moment, you know, the idea of being great at connecting with an audience and or connecting with people or moving people resonated with you because it 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 basically vibrated with who you were created to be. Yeah, no question about it. Yeah. It was early days. I mean, wait a second. I and, and so I tell people all the time, at my core, I'm a performer. Mm-hmm. Early days, you know, I was beginning to realize this core role of mm-hmm. being a performer. Now, you can perform in so many different ways. But it was in those early days where I realized that there was this deep, deep talent and passion to perform. My friends, I am so grateful for every single review on Amazon for Master the Key. It is a book that is having a transformational impact in the lives of each and every person who reads it. And right now we are sitting at 63 reviews on Amazon and I am incredibly grateful for each and every one. One of the ways to maintain momentum in book sales is actually by having a lot of reviews. And I'd love to get to 100 reviews by the end of July or the, or early August if possible. And so I would be incredibly grateful if you would hit pause after I read this review, head over to Amazon and pick up a copy or two of Master the Key for a friend, for yourself, for your family, for a colleague, and, and leave a review, an honest review. It doesn't have to be five stars, just about your experience with the book. You can leave a review like Lisa M did. She said, get ready to rethink life. A friend recommended this book to me and it came at the perfect time because I am in some transitions in life. Master the Key helped me to really rethink the tough changes that I am in with life and work, both losing a parent and having an unexpected job transition. Transition, And instead of coasting through this time merely to survive, now I can grow better by using the stories and questions in the book. I hope you find and some inspiration and opportunities to grow like I did. Lisa, thank you so much for this powerful review. I am incredibly grateful, humbled, and honored that you purchased the book and that you left a review and that it's having a transformational impact in your life. So thank you very much. Now hit pause, head over to Amazon, pick up yourself a copy of Master the Key, a story to free your potential, find meaning, and live life on purpose. And now... Back to the show. So there's this moment in the story of David versus Goliath where David comes down to the battlefield and his brothers are cowering in the trenches 
and they look up at him and they say, "Hey, what are you doing here? Go back to tend your 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 flock of sheep, right? Let the real pe- let the real men fight the battle." I think many of us in that moment don't respond the way David did by marching into Saul's tent and saying, "Oh yeah, watch me," right? I think many of us actually do either turn around, make an about face, and and go back to doing what we were told that we should should be doing, or we stand there and kind of argue and bicker and not march forward. You didn't just become a broadcaster. You didn't just follow through with what your your drama teacher told you to do about performing and connecting with people. There was a point in your life where you did what people said you should do, right? I mean. And it was frustrating. So can you take us to that moment where when you open up with the proximity principle, you, you tell the story early on in the book about sitting on your patio with a coffee in hand, super frustrated. You know you need to make a change. And there's a lot of things flying around in your head. Yeah, I'm going to answer that. But I'm so glad you brought up Dave and Goliath. So before I answer, take you there and what was going on, I, we got to go back to Dave. Okay. You just said something really, really great. And I got to thank you. You just gave me a wonderful thought. So why did David, why did he march into Saul's tent? When his brothers laughed at him, when everybody else ridiculed him, why did he do it? He knew it's, he knew what was at stake. Yes, but there's a, there's, a, there's a deeper answer. The reason he did it is because he believed that he could actually pull it off. Mm-hmm, that's true, yeah. Yes. Like, I remember that this is not a fantasy story. This really happened. And this is a guy who uh, knew at that moment that he could do it. Why did he know he could do it? Well, some people would say, oh, his faith was so great. Yes, but he personally believed that he could pull it off. Why? We go to the backstory. Mm-hmm. Kills a lion, right? Kills a bear with his bare hands, right? And, and, and he knows, wait a second, something's going on here. So you bring in the God equation, you believe God gives him the power to do it, whatever. Okay. Here's the point. The point is when we slay some of the things that we're afraid of, when we conquer things along the journey, sometimes they're small. Right. No matter how small they are, when we step into this moment of fear and we slay the thing that is creating fear, that goes into our database. Right, goes into our head and strengthens our heart. We remember that I've done it before, and it's that's where courage comes from. So David, in that moment, he's going, I, I, I'm pretty darn sure I can do this. Yeah, because I've done it twice before. That's mm-hmm. the beauty. That's the beauty of what you just brought up. So, can we actually be? Can we? I want to stay on David for a second. Yeah, I love it because it's really, really good. It's like. It, Regardless of anyone's faith, and, I, and I'm a Christian like you, and but this his, David's story is applicable to, to anybody. And the reality is, is that you know David runs in and he face he you know he, he walks into Saul's tent, appeals to Saul to let him fight the battle. But then to your your point about that everybody is created uniquely and for a purpose, Saul puts his armor on David. David walks around in it and has to take it off because if he does wear Saul's armor, he's not going to be able to perform his skill. Right. That's exactly right. And if you imagine, he he's in Saul's, he's in the king's tent, right? 
So the king probably has at his avail every modern day weapon. And then he walks out uh, out of that tent with nothing but a slingshot and walks over to a dry riverbed and picks up yeah, stones. So they do the traditional thing. They try to put the traditional armor on him. And he's a kid. He's 16 years old, you know, or roughly around that time. He's a small kid. And then the armor dwarfs him. Saul was the man over six feet tall, big guy. So you're right. They put all this traditional, well, you got to have this armor if you're going to fight. And he can't even move. Yeah. So he throws it off. And what does he do? He says, I'm going to be me. And I'm really good with a slingshot. You know, he's been on the backside of the, of the pasture for years and years and years, slinging that slingshot and, and knocking dandelions off. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about how skilled he is with this. Totally. It's a really wonderful story of where he goes, I know I can do this. Mm-hmm. I believe I can do this. And the way I'm going to do this is the way I, you know, the way I did it before. A modern day story as well is like the Sergeant York story from World War II. This guy from like, I forget where he was from, but he, you know, he basically spent most of his childhood and and stuff um, hunting rabbits to feed his family, basically. Right. And he ends up becoming one of the greatest heroes in the, of World War II, you know? Well, you know, Gladwell writes about this. Mount Gladwell takes a like a real technical look at the story of David and Goliath. It's a fabulous mm-hmm. I haven't read mm-hmm. it since we're on this thing. But he talks about the fact that why did David do what he did? Well, again, remember I said it wasn't all about faith. I think we want to romanticize it. There's certainly a lot of faith there. But he had tremendous belief in his skill. So Gladwell does the scientific approach on this. But, you know, basically he just says that the ability to sling a rock in that slingshot is is the equivalent of shooting somebody in the head with a bullet. Like it was that lethal. Mm-hmm. That rock was going really, really fast. So David's going, um, this dude's going to stand there and try to throw a giant spear at me. And I'm going to shoot him with a bullet right in the head. I mean, it was almost <laughs> like, what does everybody not see? And again, this is where the story is so rich. He believes that he's called to do this. He believes he's got the talent to do this. And he goes after it because he goes, well, this guy, I'm thinking, wait a second, you know, this guy's going to try to come at me. He's nine feet tall, weighs, you know, who knows how many hundred pounds. He tries to hit me with a spear. There's no way I can dodge the spear. You know, he's running through his head. But all I got to do is, is, is get one clean look and he's dead. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, totally. And, and so this is the key here. Do you believe you were created with skill? And mm-hmm. Talent, right? Let's start with that talent. And then we can develop skills out of talent. We can hone the raw talent into a sharp skill. And so he just believes. He goes, hey, I can do this. Give me a shot. He's begging Saul. Everybody else is going, you're nuts. You're out of your mind. He's like, he's like, what if they, I don't even, this is, David is the one that thinks everybody's lost their mind. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And they're all going, this kid's nuts, you know, and he's going, no, you guys, you don't get this, you know. And uh, so that's what's beautiful about it. But anyway, you had asked me about the back patio. Yes. Look, I'm sitting there and I knew these things to be true. I knew that I had the talent to, to get into broadcasting. I had kind of dipped my toe into the water, Michael, but I had been rejected. Things, you know, things just hadn't happened. And I was largely uh, hoping that someone would discover me. And I wasn't working day in and day out. I had kind of done this, done a little bit of this. And, Nothing had gone my way, and I'm sitting on that patio, you know, having a little pity party. And that's when I realized that nobody was sitting around thinking about how they could help Ken Coleman out. You know, I mean, how selfish and how stupid is that? You know, everybody's <laughs> living their own life; they're doing their own thing. Now, will people help you? Yes, and that's what the whole proximity principle is about. But 
they're not just waking up going, hey, this Ken Coleman guy, I think could be a really good broadcaster. Let me uh, give him a call today and just open every door for him. That just doesn't happen. And so that realization hit me like a ton of bricks. And I felt the weight on my chest. And I said, okay, I'm, it's, I've got to do this. And do I believe that I have the talent to do it? Uh, and the answer was absolutely. And so I just, I just kind of stepped back out into it and started the long journey. And, uh, you know, step by step, more rejection, uh, more failure, uh, a lot of doubt, a lot of fear, but I kept going. How many years ago was that moment? That would have been around 2007, some, somewhere in that range. Okay. So you, what's your wife's name again? Stacy. Stacy, yes. You guys just celebrated your 21st anniversary in oh. May. Congratulations. Right. You like, did you guys get married when you were 12 or something? I mean, <laughs> oh, you're, you're very kind. No, we got I was 23 and I got married. So I get yeah. that. I think I posted on Instagram. It was our 21st wedding anniversary. And there were people like, what did you get married when you were nine? <laughs> uh, no, we, I guess we got good DNA and we've lived uh, relatively uh, clean lives. So, yeah, yeah. So, you know, you're, rel- you're relatively, you know, in the early phases of your marriage. At that time, we've been married. Uh, let's see, 2007 would have been 98. So I can't do any math. That would have been uh, almost 10 years. Ago. Yeah, almost 10 years. So I mean, you're, you're you've experienced some ups and downs certainly in that point. But how there's a lot of of married couples that listen to my show, and one of the most important things. In fact, I've had my my wife Lisa on my show twice to talk about getting on the same page with vision and purpose and all of that stuff and the importance of of you know being on that same sheet of music. So as you are grappling with this stuff, how is Stacy breathing, speaking truth to your fear? And how are you how are you guys cultivating the vision together? Yeah, she her her main role when I would get down and be wrestling with doubt and and things like that, she would she would always affirm and say, you absolutely have what it takes. You know, I mean, that was a constant affirmation from her. She really believed. She absolutely believed that I, that I did have what it took. Uh, she also trusted that I was going to take care of her and the family. She knew that I was a hard worker, so she had witnessed you know me working hard, and uh, just didn't have a lot of fear. It just felt like, hey, let's do this. Let's do this together. Mm-hmm. One of the things that, that Stacy is amazing at, and, and boy, I'll tell you. Uh, well, maybe I'll do a dating show. Maybe I'll turn the Ken Call <laughs> Friday where I just do a dating show. That'd be uh, awesome. Talk about relationships because I'd love to tell young men specifically. One of the greatest qualities you can look, in fact, the number one quality you can look for in a, in a life mate is somebody who is not just loves you because that's that's obviously that's that's a big deal, but they don't beyond love you. They actually believe in you. Mm-hmm. Those are two different things, you know. Uh, to love somebody is is to serve and to uh, it's unconditional, and you, you think of them first, all that. But to believe in somebody is where you you really she believed in, mm-hmm. really did, absolutely believed in, and and because of that, you know, has been again my rock through everything. She just always believed. And she just said, you got to do it. And she believed in what I believed in. Not just believed in me, but she was like, yeah, this is, this is awesome. She would get excited when I would get passionate. Mm. That's what you want in a woman. That's what mm. you want in a man. 
Mm-hmm. You marry somebody who gets really excited about you shining bright. Uh, you know, relate. I can tell. I can watch a dating relationship, and I can tell you right now if it's doomed or not. I can watch it. Mm-hmm. If they celebrate each other, so you, you want to be in a situation in a relationship where your spouse is jacked for you when things are going great for you, and then you need to be the same way. Like there's no competition there. It's just woohoo! And Stacy's always been that for me, and Ezra's mm-hmm. that way for her too. You know, there's. Mm-hmm. Oh, we're not threatened by each other when we shine bright. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that I love that you use the word believe. It actually means so that the, the there's two parts to that word. It's the be and then the leave. Right, the leave part is actually it's a German rooted word, and that that word actually means love. Mm, isn't that funny? Yeah, really great. So so I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna fix my answer going forward. When I talk about this, but there's got to be love, right? But love and belief got to go together. They really do. I mean, yeah. I mean, because I'm going to tell you something. Marriage is tough. Mm-hmm. tough. You throw kids in the equation. You throw going after a dream, all that kind of stuff in there. I'm telling you, there better be some deep, deep belief yeah. in each other. And that's the most important. What's funny about that is I just figured out what you said, Mike. I was trying to tie it together when you, because I got to go do research on that, the German, the root word. Here's the deal. When you believe in each other, the love will be stronger. Right. 100%. I yeah. don't think it's the other way around. No. I, I think you believe in each other so much, and then the love grows stronger. Because what I mean is we all are in love, right? Like right. The feelings we have when we're dating and the feelings we have when we get engaged are very different than when you're seven years in. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Totally. So when Stacy's saying to you, I believe in you, Ken, she's saying, I, I love you. And... I love you because you are being who you were created to be. That's it. The collective belief in each other makes yeah. love strong. Yes, totally. 100%. And that, and that enables you to be, go from sitting on that patio stuck to actually taking action. And there's, there's, we, can, we can all dream and there's no cost to dreaming, but there is a cost that comes with doing, right? Doing does not come. Free, as you mentioned, it requires work, both mental and literal work. And you've actually, in the proximity principle, you've actually laid out a roadmap that that will give people the ability to move from that dreaming to the doing. But but going to the doing in a with a with a with a conf, a set of a certain sense of confidence because they know that they have a roadmap, guideposts, the people, the places, and the practices. Right. That that they can refer to to cultivate the doing. Well, the confidence comes from knowing that the opportunities will present themselves. Right. What everybody longs for, right? You think about the American dream, right? Why do people come to this country? Opportunity. That's the word. If you're mm-hmm. going to break it all down into one thing, why do people still want to come to this country? It's opportunity. So we all long for opportunity. So what I've done in the proximity principle with the five people and the five places is show you if you get around these five people and you get in these five places, opportunity finds you. It will mm-hmm. you out. What you do with that opportunity is another book, right? Yeah. Uh, you write about the practices in the back and try to maximize those opportunities. But the reality is, is that what I'm excited about, and of course we're getting great feedback from people who are reading it, which is wonderful, is that it opens up their eyes for the first time and they go, oh, 
I see where the professor is. Oh, I've never realized the producers are all around me. I can actually, because of the world being flat and YouTube and podcasts and books, I can sit and learn from the professionals, the top of the top in my industry. You know, my peers really matter. You know, who am I hanging around? Are they lifting me? Are they pushing me? Are they holding me accountable? Uh, And then do I have a true mentor or two or three or four in different areas of my life? And when they begin to see the people in their head, then they begin to see them in their life. And they can get there. They can hustle. They can get around those people. And same thing places, right? You know, where you are, a place to learn, a place to practice, a place to perform, a place to grow. These are real places. And I'm so proud that you mentioned those things because they're real. And as you know, in the book, we take the reader right to those people and into those places so you know where they are, what to look for, how do you maximize the opportunity. It's like being at a train station, Michael. If I go to one of my favorite places in all the world in New York City is, is Grand Central. It's a majestic place. Mm-hmm. And what I like about it, it's so image rich. When you walk in those historic doors and you see the board, you know, now it's digital, right? And it's yeah. just this train and this train and it's going here at this time. And boy, all you got to do is show up and buy a ticket. And mm-hmm. so all we've done in the proximity principle is show people how to show up, how to get in the right places around the right people so that opportunity country. This episode is brought to you by the Lawton Marketing Group, a full-service advertising and design agency specializing in websites, social media, apps, logos, and more. Based in Oklahoma, they work with clients across the nation from small businesses to large corporations and everything in between. You can find them right now on the web at www.lawtonmg.com or call them at 580-275-2063. Connect with them now for a complimentary competitive analysis of your website. Just tell them the impact entrepreneur told you to call. There are so many great examples uh, throughout the book that of, of all of the different people, of the different places and the practices. But one particular thing that I, I think is really powerful that is is a very important lesson, and that and that's in the the start where you are section of the book, where you you have this desire to be to be a broadcaster, right? You you but you understand that you have to pay your dues, and and you're going to have to find different creative ways to to create some experience for yourself, right? Because nobody again is looking out, wondering how can they hire Ken Coleman at this point, right? And so. You, through your own, uh, you know, research and, and effort, found uh, an opportunity to, I guess, be the MC at this county fair where you basically were introducing clowns and mm-hmm. and uh, balloon animals. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's the low point of my with great enthusiasm. Oh yeah, I mean, I was prepared. I I was excited. Uh, I, I almost took these people. You know, kind of back when I choked and go, hey, how do you want me to introduce you? What do you want me to say? And this guy's like a balloon artist. You know what I mean? And, yeah. And it was one of those, it was a long day. I started at noon, went until nine o'clock. Uh, I actually introduced the Smithereens, if you know that band. I actually introduced them. That was kind of the big deal. But by that point in the day, I was so beat down and so frustrated about what am I doing? Because all day long, I've been just introducing you know, these small acts and just to empty lawn chairs or 12 people and they're not listening to me. And 
I'm going, what am, what am I doing? Why am I not home with my wife and three kids? Is this really going to help me get where I want to go? And the answer was that the actual hosting of that day uh, and introducing a mime, and I tried to high five him, and he left me hanging with the class. <laughs> that low moment had me basically depressed driving home. And I'm driving home going, what a long day. I, it was miserable. I felt like a loser. You know, I mean, it was, it was not good for me. And then before I got in the house, uh, I was sitting in the driveway and and I was like, okay, you got to get your head together. You don't want to walk in because Stacey's going to be bebop and the kids are going to be you know, excited and all this kind of stuff. And it hit me. I said, are you willing to do whatever it takes and wait as long as it takes? That was a question that hit me because that's what that day was about. That day was not about opportunity. That day was, are you willing to do what it takes? Mm-hmm. To wait as long as it takes. So it's like anybody who goes, I got to lose 30 pounds or 50 pounds, or I'm going to go get in shape or like me last year, I decided 12 weeks out to train for the half marathon. So I go from couch to the half marathon in 12 weeks. It was a brutal training process. Brutal. Okay. I hadn't run in years. And I'm running that first mile, that first training day. And I'm going, I'm halfway through and I'm just dying. And I'm like, what am I doing? Well, it's not about that, right? It's about the process. It's about the end goal. Do I want to finish that half marathon? And do I want to do well? And so the same thing, I'm sitting in the parking, in the, in the driveway going, do I want to be a national broadcaster? Do I want to help people through broadcasting? And the answer was unequivocally yes. So it was about, are you willing to do what it takes? Mm-hmm. That day was about the first run, right? It wasn't about, there was nothing we measured. We didn't measure anything on that first mile. It was just get out there and begin to get your lungs and your legs, you know, wake them up a little bit. And that day, Bonnie yeah. Festival was going, are you willing to do what it takes? Are you willing mm-hmm. to do the small stuff? Swallow your pride. So that day was about getting victory over pride. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's so true because anything that's worth doing is going to take time. It's very rare that, I mean, even in going back to the whole David and Goliath thing, right? So David kills Goliath, but then he actually goes into Saul's service before he ends up becoming king, right? right. And the, the interesting difference between between those two, David and Saul, also just to, as I was thinking about it, is that when David, when Saul was anointed by Samuel, he hid behind a, a bunch of like a bushel or something. But when David was anointed, he he just kept being who he was, right, leaning into that, and he didn't like try to rush the process, and he he was invested in it, and he was willing to suffer for it, which is the actual meaning of the word passion, and. Yeah. Exactly right. Love that you said that. You know, which is that's the most important. If if anybody can learn anything about entrepreneurship and about doing the act of doing, it's really understanding the word passion, and it's it's being willing to. It's building up what I refer to as time tolerance. That's exactly right. You know, I ask that question of my listeners on the Ken Coleman show every day: Are you willing to do what it takes? And everybody always goes, "Yeah, absolutely." And then I go, okay, well, that's what you're supposed to say. That's kind of like the human yeah. response. Sometimes we don't even believe it, but we'll say it. But then this is the one that makes them really lean in, Michael. And that's, that's when I say, are you willing to wait as long as it takes? Mm-hmm. That separates that separates the, the good from the great. Yeah. Are, are no, you an, totally. Are you an Indiana Jones fan by any chance? 
Oh, absolutely. Okay, so I forget which one it was, but it's one of those one of those episodes. Maybe it's the the Indiana Jones and the Lost Tomb or whatever Raiders of the Lost Ark. One of the one of those, but it's set in in India. There's a scene that's in India, and there's these these bridges that are like made of trees. You 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 remember what I'm saying? Can you can you picture it? I'm sure. Okay, so those are actually real things. Those are called living root bridges, and they're they're made basically by a a, a special uh, f- type of ficus tree, a rubber tree, where they 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 can stretch the roots from one side of the river to the other, so that when the when the big rains come, villagers can cross without being killed by the waters. Those bridges take thirty years to build. But they can last for six hundred. Yeah, and so the people that are working on those bridges may never see them. They never may never be able to even cross them before they're completed. But yet, the work that they put in will last for generations. That's exactly right. It's a beautiful analogy, and and it's really true. And people have got to get to the point psychologically where they're all in, mm-hmm. and where to truly pursue the dream. Totally. So you don't get to the all in if you're not willing to say yes to both of those questions. Are you willing to do what it takes? Yes. Are you willing to wait as long as it takes? Because that the patience while persisting is the juice. That's the totally hundred percent. You got to be willing to stay with it. Another another part in the places is starting in your own zip code. Yeah. And I love that you do that. And you, there's the Walt Disney story and the Jeff Bezos story, and and I think that we're. We, we're so constrained by our own limiting beliefs and the four walls that that we live in that we don't think we can do great things where we live, and that's a lie. It's absolutely a lie. That's why we call it the law of the zip code, because it's a true law. Everything you need to get started is already around you. That's the law of the zip code. So if you begin to say, okay, there's something that I can do where I am to get this ball rolling or to take that first step on the path. That first step's not a big step, but it is, in, in fact, a forward-moving action. And so you can do that where you are. Uh, you can learn something where you are. You can connect with somebody where you are. And this idea that I've got to move somewhere geographically to go somewhere in my career is a myth. Now, there might very well be a season, a moment where you're going to have to pick up, pit, you know, break the tent down and move on, but not to get started. And I think so many people, Michael, they make this a great excuse because it seems very logical. And then because it's logical, it seems very smart. And so they go, oh, well, I I got a wife and three kids. We can't, we can't just up and move. So, well, that's a shame. Well, I'm doing, I'm being a good man. I'm being a good provider, being really smart. And so that becomes this fake smart excuse. Give an example. I had a guy call my radio show uh, last year and he was from Charlotte, North Carolina. And uh, I picked up the phone and, and first thing out of his mouth is, Ken, I know exactly what I want to do, but I just don't think I can get there and I need your help. I said, great. What do you want to do? He said, well, I want to be in video, movie production, television, some type of video, television, movie production. I've always enjoyed directing videos I've done some of that in the past, uh, producing. That's the space I want to be in. But I got married, got kids. And in L.A., New York, it's not an option. 
So I just simply responded and said, well, let me ask you this. How many video production companies do you think are in Charlotte, North Carolina? And he started chuckling because he knew exactly what I had just done. I had changed his entire perspective. He'd been looking out and I just gave him a new set of glasses and made him look around. And he said, probably a couple dozen. I said, at least. Charlotte, North Carolina is a bustling economy, great city. Uh, there are a lot of production companies. You think about it, you're watching TV at night, you see all the local commercials, you know, the bad mortgage commercials or the ambulance <laughs> chasing lawyers or around uh, state politics, you know, all those are produced by local companies. Mm-hmm. And you think about any video that's produced on, on a local website, it's probably produced locally. So he knew all this already, but I just kind of drove this nail all the way in. And uh, I said, you need to get in proximity. You need to use the proximity principle. I want you to get around, which by the way, the proximity principle says, in order to do what you want to do, you've got to be around people that are doing it and in places where it is happening. I said, that's what you need to do. You start connecting with people that are that own or working for production companies, or is there a, you know, a trade show that's going to be there locally, or you know, just figure it out. It's not difficult. So I got an email from the guy about eight weeks later, and he had gotten a job for a local production company. I was thrilled. And he used the proximity principle. He started hanging around and making connections, and, and boom, opportunity comes. And he's loving life, and he's in Charlotte, North Carolina. So that's an idea there that, you know, again, I, I illustrated in the book about how I started in a broadcasting class. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with Jeff. Jeff Batten, you know, um, that was in Atlanta. That was also a place to learn, you know. But the point is, is that you can get started where you are. And a lot of people make the big leap, the big jump. They use that as the excuse. And I'm trying right. to get that out of your vocabulary. There is no right. necessary. Right, totally. And, and you did that all while still work. I mean, you did that at night, right? Or it was like a six-week course or something. You I mean you? I did it during the day, but I mean, I had my own business, so I was. Right. I, my wife and I were, were basically running our own business, selling sponsorship to live events. She'd do the back end, a lot of the customer service stuff, and I did the deals and cut the deals and did kind of the, the initial stuff. And we were a great little team, but it afforded me the opportunity, the freedom to do this stuff because 100%. I set my own schedule. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, uh, you have to understand that, that, uh, I was doing it when I could. And, and every time I did something new or something different, it, it many times didn't yield a huge opportunity, but what it did was verify and solidify mm-hmm. my resolve. Mm-hmm. Now, that's huge. Mm-hmm. Because I'm not a guy, you know, you listen to my show. I'm not a uh, self-help guru who sells all this cheap motivational crap. That's just not who I am. I'm <laughs> a real story. And I'm telling you that when I did some of these things, like intern for three hours a day, three days a week at a sports uh, radio station, it didn't lead to some huge thing. But it verified it, it verified the passion that it, this is, in fact, something I want to do. I love this. And that verification, that verifying, solidified. My resolve, and I was willing to keep going because I knew that when I tasted it, it tasted good, and I wanted. Mm-hmm. It. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you know, some people might be listening to this right now, and that little self-doubt voice is talking in, yeah. in their head, and they're saying, "You know, that's great for Ken and Mike, 
You know, they're self-employed. They can do that. I've got a nine to five. I don't have time. I that is that is the one of the biggest lies. Total that, garbage. That's total garbage. And uh, there's 168 hours in a seven day week. We sleep about 54 of them. You know, most people, let's say they work 50, right? So that's 60 hours, give or take, that you know they can do something, right? They got their family time, right? They've got. You know, their physical, whatever. There is time for people to work on their vision, dreams, and goals if they're willing to audit it, if they're willing to take control of that. You do have time. You might have to sacrifice something. Right. Totally. Yeah. There were many Saturdays that I sacrificed time with my kids, but I'm very close with my kids. And I've always been very present in their life. So were there times where I sacrificed some Saturdays to do that early radio show? Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. Uh, but I've made up for it later. So mm-hmm. you know, this idea that that you don't have time is just complete, utter nonsense. It's, it's right. nonsense. Yeah. You, you're going to have to sacrifice. Well, I'm going to pull a little bit over here from this. And I'm going to pull over here from this. and I'm going to move some things around. And that's just how it is. One of the things that you, 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 you know, we've talked about some people, we've talked about some places, and I want to wrap with the proximity principle by talking about putting it into practice because the example that you gave of your of the guy who called in your show and and 8 weeks later gets this video production job your current position my position like this is a this is an ongoing thing it's not like a one and done kind of scenario so you you have to know your role you have to accept your role you have to maximize your role as you laid out in the book and in that you you have you also say that you have to be bold, be audacious, but don't be obnoxious. And I'd love for you to talk about those three elements: know your role, accept your role, maximize your role, and be bold, be audacious, but don't be obnoxious. Sure. Well, knowing your role is clarity, and so this is important because we as human beings want progress. We want the next. We're always dreaming about the next, and that's a good thing. But if you obsess about the next and you miss what you need in the now, what you're supposed to be doing, what you're supposed to be learning in the now, then you could ultimately sacrifice the next. So these, this three-part know your role, accept your role, maximize your role helps us fight that human condition to obsess about the next. So knowing our role is about clarity. You got to have absolute clarity no matter what industry you're in, no matter what role you're in. What is this, What is expected of me? What does a win look like? This is... This is clarity, clarity, clarity. If I know that, then, I, then I've got a mindset that this is what's expected of me in the now. So this is how I win the now. That's what clarity does. So that's knowing your role. Second thing is accepting your role. This is an attitude issue. So again, is it my dream job? No. Uh, but again, if I don't win in the now, there is no next. Mm-hmm. Or it certainly can delay me getting to the next. I've got to win in the now. So I do that by being grateful for this position now. I would have killed for this position six months ago. I got it. It's not the dream job, but I'm on the ladder. It's a rung on the ladder. So I'm grateful for the for the for what it provides me. And I'm grateful for what it will potentially lead to. So that's gratitude. This keeps my head in the game. Big picture thinking. All right, now, mm-hmm. third thing is maximize your role. So we know what a win looks like, and we're grateful, 
But now, how do we get noticed? How do we get up to the next rung? Well, the way we do it in a healthy organization is maximizing our role. We're going to go above and beyond. So this is the win here. And, and so if it's a 10 for the win, I'm going to be given an 11, 12, 13 effort. I'm going to be looking for things to do that are outside of my normal duties. And I'm going to do those when I have time. I'm going to do those well. I'm going to help a teammate. I'm going to help my leader. I'm going to show myself valuable in other areas, all while still killing it in what is expected of me. We understand this. We understand what maximizing our role is. You think of a leader. Uh, you think of an athlete. You think of an artist who has exemplified this idea of unbelievable preparation and uh, dogged performance. Well, that's what maximizing the role looks like. So if you do those three things, here's what I know. Progress will find you. The promotion will find you. You don't have to worry about it. Mm-hmm. Now, this idea of being audacious versus obnoxious is a different thought, but it's the difference between the people who get what they want and the people who are always just sitting around like I was in my patio going, hey, how come you haven't noticed me? <laughs> so audacity is this idea of, of asking for the lunch, asking to connect. Uh, and when you're there connecting, asking them all kinds of questions and saying, hey, who else do I need to know? What are some places that I need to be in? Would you be willing to put me? Now, this is a hunger. So audacity is showing up uh, with some hunger and humility. You know, you're not saying, hey, help me do this. You're saying, teach me, show me. That's different. Mm-hmm. So the person is the person that's, um, that's, you can see them coming a mile away. And they're, they're, they're bragging. They're telling you. From the minute they start talking, how much they deserve, how good they are, and they just need a chance, blah, 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 blah. But that's obnoxious. Nobody likes it. Nobody wants to help a person. Mm-hmm. But who they want to help is somebody going, hey, listen, uh, I admire you because you're doing what I want to do one day. Um, we had a mutual connection. They gave me your name. I would love to take you to coffee sometime. I know you got to do coffee. I'd like 20 minutes with you. And I promise I'm not going to ask you to do anything for me. All I want to do is learn from you. Now, let me tell you something. That's attractive. Mm-hmm. That's audacious. It's audacious in that it's possible that that person could turn you down and not do it. So that hurts and we don't like to be rejected. The audacity to ask somebody you don't know for 20 minutes of their time, but that's not obnoxious. You need to be audacious, not obnoxious. Yes, I love that. You got to be willing to be told no. Okay, so first of the three, three questions is if you could pick any skill set that you currently possess and turn it into a superpower, what would it be? This could be short or long answers. Discernment. Discernment. It's Discernment. One, one of my key strengths uh, to discern. I can listen to people on the phone if you listen to my show. But a lot of times I'll say something back to somebody and you hear the caller say, wow, you just read my mind. Well, mm. um, but I have, a, I have a, the ability to, to see and hear things from people. So I'd love to be able to take that and make that a superpower and just read people's minds. That would be pretty awesome. What are what? Yeah, would yeah. What are three lies that we tell ourselves that prevent us from realizing our full potential? That I'm not good enough. I don't have. I just don't have the the ability to do what I want to do. I'm not good enough. That I'm not loved. And the third one would be, it's too late. Mm, I so the first one is we just doubt our talents and skills. You know, it's just a big doubt issue. The second one is a, is a human condition. You know, I just don't feel like I matter. I'm not loved. You know, that, that's that idea. But I don't matter. There's not a role for me. 
So there's nothing for me to contribute. That's that idea. And that third one is, is a lot of people just feel like, oh, I missed it. I didn't go to school for it. I don't have a major in it. That's a total lie. Not true. Final question is, it's 100 years from now, and you've left a set of instructions for a cinematographer, a filmmaker to craft, create a movie that will answer this question. How will Ken Coleman measure his life? What would those instructions include? Yeah, to make sure to uh, interview his family and close friends about how intentional he was in their lives, uh, to lift them to be the encourager, uh, the, the affirmation that they needed, um, and then to, to, to interview the audience, people that I met, people that I talked to on the phone, people that read my books, things like that. I would want them to gauge that, the, the impact on people from the personal connections and the care and desire to uh, believe in people, to measure how they felt when I transferred some belief to them. I think that would be an assignment. Ken Coleman, thank you so much for joining us on the Impact Entrepreneur Show and for the success of the Proximity Principle. Congratulations. Look forward to staying in touch with you and collaborating. And thanks again for joining us on the show. Thanks, Mike. I really appreciate it. Thank you to this week's guest and thank you for listening. If you missed any of the key points and highlights from my conversation, we've got you covered over at theimpactentrepreneur.net forward slash podcast for show notes to each and every episode. And while you are there, check out Flynn Wealth Strategies and Insurance Solutions. You can do that by visiting flynnwealthstrategies.com. The Lot Marketing Group and the Podcast Masters. We could not do this show without them and with all of their support. Now, until next time, go make an impact.